If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor, and I'm joined today by our deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. Coming up in this podcast... On the one hand, we'd have the, the king who everyone thought was responsible for Beckett's murder not being able to welcome a fellow king royally and being hopelessly then overshadowed by the prestige and influence of the Church of Canterbury, the Shrine of the Martyr. Professor John Gilliam on the castle built on Thomas Beckett's blood. Digby conceived the idea, an eccentric idea really, that he was going to write the great founding work on swimming. So it was a work in Latin. That was Professor Nicholas Orme explaining how we first learnt to love swimming. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling History Monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later on. Now, the lead feature in this issue charts the story of Isaac Newton's battle with counterfeiters in the Royal Mint, and thus we have the great scientist gracing the August cover. However, we also have a fascinating feature about Tudor swimming. So, Sue, over to you. OK, now, are you off on holiday this month? 
If so, then no doubt you'll be doing a bit of swimming or at least jumping into the water to cool off, weather permitting. It's something we look forward to in the summer, but it wasn't always so. Earlier, I spoke to Nicholas Orme, Emeritus Professor of History at Exeter University, who's an expert on the history of swimming. He told me all about the first ever book on how to swim, which was written by one Everard Digby in 1587. Um, now, Nicholas, before Everard Digby wrote his Guide to Swimming in 1587, did anyone swim for pleasure? And in fact, could anyone swim at all? Oh, yes, people could always swim. I think it's, uh, it's an, an ancient human characteristic, isn't it? It probably goes back before we were humans. Um, but they did it, on the whole, in a matter-of-fact kind of way. And people didn't write about it, and they didn't uh, produce treatises telling you how to do it. Digby was writing in the Renaissance when uh, knowledge was much influenced by what the Greeks and the Romans had done. And the Greeks and the Romans had produced a great series of textbooks on this or that. You know, there was Aristotle on philosophy and science, and there, was, um, there were works on war and agriculture and so on. And Digby conceived the idea, an eccentric idea, really, that he was going to write the great founding work on swimming. So it was a work in Latin, because that was the respectable language. He probably hoped that it would circulate in Europe, which it did, actually. And um, it was to be a, a kind of philosophical uh, justification of swimming, a history of swimming, um, a kind of moral argument for swimming, why it was important in education and in human development, and then finally, how to do it. Yes, so his, his treatise gave uh, swimming a, an authority and a, a nobility and a sort of theoretical background, I guess. Um, and as you say, it was a very practical guide as well. It is a very practical guide, and one of the wonderful things about it is the fact that it's got these illustrations. Clearly, the technician who drew the 43 woodcuts that accompany the chapters on how to swim, uh, I presume that that person wasn't just left alone in a dark room to draw those. Um, he must have been given um, some kind of roughs, possibly produced by Digby himself of the positions of the body in the water and, and so on. So, I mean, that is itself very interesting because most Tudor treatises don't have pictures in them. I, I think it must be a very important book in the history of visual representation. OK, and the images are, are lovely, actually. We, we print some in the magazine to go with your feature. Um, wonderful pictures of, of gentlemen stripping off and swimming and um, doing the different strokes. And um, he had some very interesting sort of techniques. Um, for example, he recommended some very interesting water wings, didn't he? He m mentions water wings at the very start, that's right, uh, when you're going to learn your first strokes of what is effectively the breaststroke. And he says that you will find this quite difficult if you do it on your own. It's better to have somebody hold up your chin uh, while you do them. Or alternatively, he said, you can get two bladders and um, tie them together and put them under your armpits. So there are effectively water wings. Um, but that, I think, is not actually new because I came across a reference to water wings in the 15th century, which I sent to the Oxford English Dictionary because there 
earliest uh, citation for water wings was 19th century. So uh, I think, um, you know, Digby isn't inventing swimming out of his head, obviously. He is um, describing, drawing on a kind of popular tradition of how you learn to swim. And we know very little about this. I mean, there may well have been um, swimming instructors. I suspect you would tend to find them more in places like Oxford, Cambridge and London than you would anywhere else because you would have had, in the two university towns, you would have had young men who wanted to learn to swim and there, there could be some old bloke, you know, who was a, uh, a barge man or, or something like that who knew how to do it who would uh, undertake to instruct you. So, that, so Digby may well have been drawing on that kind of popular tradition. His pictures obviously all show men swimming, and, and this was strictly for the men, wasn't it? He wasn't recommending that women cast off their clothes and jumped into the river? No, he wasn't at all. Um, there was a very long-established convention, again, that uh, when men went into the water, they took all their clothes off. Uh, when women went into the water, they kept on some sort of um, smock or shift. Um, and there's no reference at all in the Middle Ages or the 16th, 17th centuries that I could find to women swimming. Uh, so it, 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 it's a male thing, and it's linked with um, war. One of the great inspirations in the Renaissance for people who were interested in swimming was Julius Caesar because he was attested in having swum um, during a battle at Alexandria. He'd actually managed to swim, I think, holding his um, uh, military papers in one hand. He'd, he'd gone across part of the Nile. And, you know, this was an absolutely heroic exploit. So swimming was seen very much as um, something warlike, heroic, you know, just as uh, the, the, the perfect warrior would be able to ride uh, a, a big horse and be able to fence. Um, so he ought to be able to swim. Do we know whether um, Digby's treaties had an effect? Did uh, more people start swimming? Did it become uh, more popular amongst the um, nobility or the gentry, for example? The work had an impact to the extent that uh, a few years afterwards, a man called Christopher Middleton translated it into English because he said the fact that it was in Latin would really restrict the number of people who could read it. And Middleton's translation, he seems to have been a, a professional translator, actually. He was probably working as a kind of hack for the book trade, translating books, and he thought this was a good one to do. And he's cut down enormously the theoretical and historical side of it. So he's really only got about three pages in the start saying why swimming is a good thing. And then he's going straight on and, um, and, and going into how you do it. And have, again, having all the uh, pictures, the woodcuts to illustrate that again. So um, then we don't hear anything about it at all until the middle of the 17th century when a man called William Percy, who I never found anything much about, um, produces another book on swimming, which is cribbed from Digby, but without any acknowledgement of the fact. And um, Percy 
puts forward his book as if it was his own invention. And then it turns up in Louis XIV's France with a man called Melchizedek Tazenow, who translates it into French, has all the woodcuts redone in classical style, and again makes no real reference to Digby. I think he may mention him somewhere in his foreword as somebody who's written about swimming, but he, he masks the fact that he's effectively cribbed the book. And um, it then circulates in France. There are several editions of it. becomes the standard work in France. And then, believe it or not, it gets translated from the French into English around about 1700, which is, again, a sign that Digby's been forgotten. And so they're, they're assuming that this French book is the uh, absolute last word on swimming, although it's actually still Digby. And then the English translation goes on being reprinted through the 18th century and appears for the last time, I think, in 1838, uh, or part of it appears in 1838. So uh, Digby does have uh, a very long influence, but not under his own name. And the fact that all these the reprints and copies were made does suggest that there was, you know, considerable interest in the in the topic of swimming. Yes, there there obviously was an interest, and um, we when Benjamin Franklin came to London in the early 18th century, uh, he could swim because he learned in America. He used to go swimming in the Thames, and people noticed this, and he then found that people were coming to him, I swear, uh, young men it would be, and saying, teach us to swim, and he did actually um, uh, teach some people. So there obviously was a, uh, a market for swimming always, so some, some people will always want to do it, but it wasn't that popular. So um, when did we all learn to love the water? When did it really become popular? I think it takes off in the 19th century for various reasons. First of all, there's the, the rise of the seaside, and of course that's late 18th century. And although a lot of sea bathing was done for purely health reasons, and as you know, you know they had these bathing machines and you got in and you were taken out and, and then you sort of descended into the water and certainly if you were a woman, you, you, you wore a, a voluminous cover while you were doing it. But, I mean, that's one thing that gets people more towards swimming. And then uh, you've got um, the rise of public schools and the, the rise of organized games and swimming is a um, is an obvious thing to include. If you read Tom Brown's school days, that, that's quite interesting because um, that's supposedly set in the 1830s. There's no swimming pool at rugby school at that time. They go to the River Avon, but there are recognized places where you swim, and uh, he does mention that there was a a man kept to supervise the swimming and presumably give lessons to the boys. So it's beginning to come in to the... Uh, in, in Tom Brown's school days, it's still not really quite in the curriculum, it's, but, it's, but it's, it's already an approved activity outside the curriculum. And then um, once you 
get further into the 19th century, then you're going to get um, artificial swimming pools, uh, outdoor ones, of course, in the first instance, being being made. And then it gets accepted as part of um, healthy urban life. And so you get the creation of public baths during the 19th century. So there are all sorts of reasons why it comes up in the 19th century. And then, of course, there's the um, development of organized sport and, and competitive sport. So you're going to start getting competitions. And there's the famous um, crossing of the channel by Captain Webb, uh, which must have enormously in increased the profile of swimming because he became a, a national hero for swimming the channel. One final question. Uh, do you like to swim yourself? Oh, yes, uh, I, I do. And um, I got interested in all this because I learned to swim comparatively late in life, in my 30s. And I went and joined an adult class and um, had a wonderful teacher who was very much like Everard Digby, actually, in, in you know, first lessons was just getting used to the water and, and how to um, recover your balance if you're worried and things like that. And um, progressed and, 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 and learned to swim properly and I still swim nearly every day and um, it, it was at that time that I thought oh I will look for references to swimming and perhaps write a little article on, on early swimming and I started collecting references and I got so many that I produced a book in the end That's fantastic, Nicholas uh, thank you very much This episode is brought to you by Indeed we're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
And that was Nicholas Thorne, Emeritus Professor of History at Exeter University and a rather keen swimmer himself. His book, Early British Swimming, 55 BC to 1719 AD, was published in 1982, but you can still get it at www.exeterpress.co.uk. Now, we'd love to get your feedback on the podcast and the magazine, and in order to do this, BBC magazines have set up something called BBC Magazine Insiders. Readers, listeners and website users who sign up to BBC Magazine Insiders are invited to take part in regular online surveys. As a member, you'll be essential in shaping BBC magazines and websites. We want to hear your views on what we do. You'll get a sneak preview at what we're working on and you'll have the chance to offer your feedback. To join, just fill in the questionnaire at bbcmagazineinsiders.com. Right, this month, Dover Castle reopens to the public following a multi-million pound renovation project which is designed to take the Great Keep back to how it might have looked in the days of the Royal Court of Henry II. Now, if Henry is remembered today, it's most likely as the king behind the murder of his Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, in December 1170. He was the man who asked some of his knights famously to rid him of the turbulent priest. Beckett's murder was an event of immense significance in the medieval world, which caused great disquiet and led to Henry having to do public penance for the misdeed. It also, as Professor John Gillingham has outlined in the latest issue of the magazine, led to the construction of a magnificent keep at Dover Castle. Now, the phone line wasn't the best when I interviewed Professor Gillingham to find out how the murder and the castle are linked, so apologies if this sounds a little fuzzy, but bear with it, the tale is a fascinating one and well worth hearing. Professor Gillingham picks up the story following the murder of Beckett. Nine years after, almost nine years after, um, after Beckett's murder, uh, the, the King of France, the ailing King of France who has just planned for his teenage son to be uh, crowned and anointed as the next King of France, learns that his son is very ill. His only son is very ill. God knows what would happen in France if he were to, the boy were to die, and decides, quite shockingly, I mean, no one has expected anything like that, that he would like to cross the Channel, visit England, go to Canterbury, go to the tomb of Thomas Beckett, um, and pray for the recovery of his son. Um, People in France were much disturbed by this, particularly the, the monks of the great royal monastery outside Paris, Saint-Denis, who thought, why on earth doesn't he come and pray at the tomb of Saint-Denis, at that shrine? But So no one was expecting anything like this. And the consequence of Louis's uh, um, un- completely unprecedented decision was that a king of France, for the first time, uh, announced that he was going to land at Dover, you know, few days' time on his way to Canterbury. He was going to enter the Kingdom of England. Uh, Henry, uh, as soon as he heard the news, uh, rode through the night in order to be down at Dover in order to greet King Louis of France in something like an appropriate way. But, of course, at, at Dover at the time, there was just nothing there which enabled him to impress the King of France to accommodate the King of France and his huge party of dukes and counts uh, in the style that was appropriate to a a royal entourage. Um, And it would have meant that the King King of France would land in England 
kind of forced to almost uh, camp out on a campsite on the south coast uh, and then moved to Canterbury where what would really strike him, of course, uh, was the power of the saint, the reputation of the saint, because only three years after Beckett's death, uh, he had been canonized by the Pope, an extraordinarily fast official canonization of someone in the period after, after their death. Um, nothing really like it ever since. Um, and on the one hand, we'd have the, the king who everyone thought was responsible for Beckett's murder, not being able to welcome a fellow king royally and being hopelessly then overshadowed by the prestige and influence of the Church of Canterbury, the Shrine of the Martyr, very much sidelined, sidelined politically, thrown into the shadow uh, by, by the cult of Beckett. And, I mean, the cult of Beckett has been going ever since. Beckett's death, really, within, within weeks, you get the first reports of, of miracles happening in the church where he was murdered and after his shrine is built in his tomb, at his tomb. Um, but what, which initially Henry had opposed, he had then, in 11, after 1174, four years later, uh, come round to being, okay, I, I think I will go along with this. I like this cult myself. But the new thing about um, Louis' visit was that Louis was the first ruler, uh, king, to come to England to pray at Beckett's tomb. And, of course, as a king, Henry felt that kings ought to be royally treated. If he couldn't do that, he was letting himself down, the prestige of his dynasty down, the honor of his crown, all this was being deeply threatened by a burgeoning cult of a saint whom his death he was responsible for, but who was now uh, causing ripples all over Europe in the sense of visitors. Because King Louis of France wasn't the first really important man from the continent uh, to come over. Uh, the Count of Flanders had come over in before, in 1177, a very powerful prince. But when, once Louis came over, Henry, I think, had to face the knowledge he had to expect that this was going to turn into something like a surge of powerful, rich, important, noble visitors coming to visit southeast England. All of them, nine, nine out of ten of them at least, coming through Dover, uh, the, the, the main port of the, the Kentish coast. And he had nothing uh, that was appropriate at Dover, and he had to do something about it. And he certainly did. So he, he invested heavily in Dover Castle. Was, what, was, what was Dover like in 1170? Was there a castle there at all? There must have been. <laughs> there certainly had been fortifications there, uh, perhaps ever since the Iron Age. Uh, there was certainly um, a, a castle of some sort there in 1066 uh, when William the Conqueror uh, came over and famously, of course, got his name by conquering England um, because the first thing he does after winning the Battle of Hastings is to march along in order to take possession of Dover. So he saw it as a strategically very important uh, point. And in the civil war uh, between Stephen and Matilda, um, Dover was one of the, the, the castles 
which uh, changed hands. But after, but but after Henry comes to the throne, which is in 1154, and one of the things about Henry is that he is famous a kind of. Uh, king who presides over administrative development and taxation development and so on. From Henry's beginning of Henry's reign, we have exchequer records, which tell us something about uh, what the king spends his money on. And so we can see from year to year um, how much the king is spending on, on different castles, on the upkeep of different forests or whatever it might be. And uh, throughout the first uh, let me think, well, 1155 to 1179, first 25 years uh, of his reign, he spends very little on Dover, uh, much more on places like Windsor, Winchester, uh, Westminster, and Nottingham, and so on. Gloucester, I mean, everywhere. Dover doesn't relate. And then suddenly, in the financial year that begins, one month after the visit of King Louis of France in August 1179, he spent much more on Dover every year for the next 10 years than on any other uh, castle in England, uh, so that by the end of his reign, he has actually spent three times more on Dover than on any other castle in England throughout his reign. And it's all focused in that last 10 years. So something extraordinary, clearly, in terms of expenditure, which turns... And but what Dover looked like before then because of the complete demolition of the site in order to erect this wonderful new uh, palace-cum-castle, uh, dem- demolished so thoroughly that we have no idea what it was like um, before. How much of Henry's castle can we see today in Dover? Well, the, the great tower at the centre is Henry's work, and most of the uh, great inner curtain wall uh, is Henry's work. Um, the subsequent developments, particularly under John and then under King Henry III after the siege of Dover um, at the end of John's reign and uh, at the very beginning of Henry III's reign, um, means that a lot of the outer works which were those parts which came under fire, under pressure, as it were, in, in that big siege. Because um, whatever Henry II had built out there has largely gone, I think. But, but the, the central points of the castle and, um, are, are very clearly Henry II's work can be dated clearly to the 1180s. And the, the, the castle has, has just been refurbished. Is there anything that you would suggest that a visitor going to Dover Castle might particularly want to keep an eye out for um, if they're interested in this Henry II story? Well, I'm afraid I don't know what they've done <laughs> inside. I think what I hope will be the case will be that it will be palatial interior, uh, that the castle's exterior obviously looks kind of bare stone walls looks grim, forbidding, fortress-like. Uh, it, yeah, I think you, know, you would hope that on the visit, on going into the interior, uh, would then be uh, struck by uh, any kind of explosion of color, of, of, of luxurious fabrics, this kind of thing. Because presumably that was what it was all about, to, to impress whoever went in there. 
Yes, I, I, I mean, I think he clearly intended to... I mean, Henry II was a much richer king than Louis of France. Um, and on um, 20 years earlier, um, he had welcomed Louis into Normandy. Um, Norm, Louis had wanted to go on a pilgrimage to Mont Saint-Michel, and... Uh, um, Henry showed him through Rouen, Caen, Bayer, uh, displaying the wealth of Normandy to him, just showing you know, what riches he had at his disposal uh, on the journey through Normandy and then back again. But if Louis and other foreign princes were to land at Dover, and there wasn't much there, if they were then to go on to Canterbury and then back again to Dover, they wouldn't have seen anything, really, of the wealth and power of the most powerful prince uh, in uh, Western Europe. They would have just seen the shrine of the most fashionable and perhaps powerful saint in Western Europe. Um, one in the eye, really, for the, for the greatest, uh, richest king of the time. Uh, so Henry was clearly, I mean, he, you know, he, he wasn't going to have the opportunity that he had had 20 years earlier in Normandy to take uh, this kind of visitor on a guided tour. I mean, had, had, had he managed to organize the murder of Beckett, shall we say, at Nottingham, then he could have shown these visitors all sorts of places. But there's just that stretch, really, um, on the road between Dover and Canterbury. Uh, and then they're going to go back again. So if you're going to impress them, then Dover is the ideal place. Not only because it is obviously right there, there that they land, that they enter the Kingdom of England, but of course the site of the castle on the cliffs at Dover, if it's built properly, will be a magnificent symbol of the power of the Lord of England, visible from miles away at sea as, the, as they approach it. And um, I clearly, you know, ideally, uh, visitors to Dover should approach it by sea. Uh, that would be the, the first, they would then share the first impression that the pilgrims to Canterbury would have had of Dover Castle coming in, coming that way. So it'll be, it should be very good from the point of view of uh, school parties coming across from Belgium and France and so on to England. It should work very well if the first place they, they visit, uh, first aspect of English culture, as it were, that they, they visit, if they come across the channel by ferry and then visit Dover Castle. That was John Gilliam, who is a leading expert on the medieval period. You can read his feature on Dover Castle in the August issue of the magazine, along with a new story on the renovation project at the castle. It sounds like it'll be well worth a visit. Now, if you're of a mind to get out and see Britain's heritage this summer, we've also started a brand new feature series in the August issue of BBC History magazine. It's called Where History Happened. The first piece in the series tackles the Norman Conquest and traces the story through the places where the events unfolded. So it goes from Stamford Bridge, through the battlefield at Hastings, and finally on to Durham Cathedral, where the stamp of the Norman occupiers was most firmly placed. You can read this by buying the magazine, which is on sale in all good news agents in the UK, for just £3.60. And even better, you can save money and ensure that you never miss an issue by subscribing. We have great subscription deals available, whether you're in the UK or listening overseas. Go to our website, 
bbchistorymagazine.com for further details. And do keep an eye out on the magazine's website over the summer. We're revamping and improving it, and it's going to be a whole lot better by the end of the summer. So thanks as ever for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Look out for the next instalment of the podcast in a couple of weeks' time. That will feature the story of the foundation of Bermuda and an analysis of the depths to which medieval brutality plunged. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.